friends, welcome to the Sunday Sermon segment of We Need God. Please listen as Father Carrozza offers his homily for today, which was recorded live in St. Anne's Parish. Why did Herod want to kill Jesus? It makes no sense. Jesus was just an infant. What harm could an infant cause him? Herod was at the end of his life. He only had a few more years to give, uh, to live. So why would he be so frightened at the birth of a little child? Well, we can plug in a few of the other pieces to help build the picture around it, and it still doesn't make sense. There's still no reason for it, but we can understand a little bit more what was going on in Herod's mind. Herod, historically, has been called Herod the Great, and that's because architecturally and everything else he did, he was an absolute great builder, a mastermind. He brought Israel up to the modern day, into the first millennium, we might say at the time. The aqueducts and everything, being a Roman, he brought all of the Roman engineering into Israel. And so the people in Judea had all the things they never had before, plumbing, the fountains, all the things, the pools that we read about that Jesus uh, worked in, in the scriptures were all brought there by Herod the Great. Now Herod, remember, Israel was conquered. It was a conquered nation by the Romans. And Israel was always a difficult area to control. They never uh, easily gave in to their being uh, conquered by the Romans. And uh, messianic spirit was high. Lots of people looking for a Messiah, a new leader, a new king like David, who was going to come along and get rid of the Romans and reestablish the kingdom of Israel. And so Caesar Augustus, uh, aware of that, in a diplomatic move to try to keep peace there and placate the Jews, appointed a Jewish king over them, one of their own. He was actually only a quarter Jewish and not really an adherent to the laws of Israel. He was more Roman, but he was a Roman who also had Jewish roots, and he figured that the Jews would be a little bit happier if they had one of their own ruling them in the name of Rome. He didn't work very well. The Jewish people despised Herod. They saw exactly what he was. He was a puppet of Caesar Augustus, and he was hardly concerned about Jewish law or anything. Yet he, he built an elaborate temple, he embellished the temple again that we saw in the time of Jesus, and many other things to placate them. But he was not really an adherent to the law. He obeyed the kosher laws and all that to give the outward appearance of being a Jew. But as you can see, when the wise men showed up in his court, he didn't know anything about this prophecy. And he had to call the wise men, uh, all of the learned people, the law in, and say, where is this Messiah to be born? Anybody else would have known that Bethlehem was the promised place. On top of all of that, Herod was paranoid. And we know that not just from this story, but from historical documents as well. Herod, at one point, had one of his wives and several of his sons put to death because he suspected that they were going to try and rise up against him, which led Caesar Augustus to say, I would rather be Herod's pig than his son, because Herod, obeying Jewish law, would never kill a pig and eat pork, it was unclean. So the pig was perfectly safe, but not so his sons. Now he was always worried that somebody was going to overthrow him, including even his own sons. By now he was at the end of his life, only a few years left to live, and even if this newborn king who was coming along was going to be a political ruler someday, he would be long dead before that time. 
and he certainly wasn't concerned about his sons, you know, as we saw. So why was he worried? Well, it makes no sense. Perhaps the best thing or the closest thing we could think of in his mind was that even the discussion of a newborn king being born at this time would be enough to raise people's sentiments for this new political messiah and might lead to a violent reaction from people and you know, up, uprisings in the streets. But King Herod had his own guards and, um, and army, so he could easily have put it down. So it really makes no sense for him to have been afraid of the birth of an infant. He was, in fact, just paranoid, and there was no room in the world for two kings in Israel. He was the king of Israel, and even a newborn infant he saw as a threat to him. He was actually such a crazy man that it is also documented that he had issued, Josephus tells us this, that he had issued a decree that when he should die, one member of all the royal and noble families of Israel should be killed so that everybody would be crying when he died. There would be mourning at his death. I don't need to tell you nobody ever carried that out when he died. But that's the type of person Herod was. He lived in paranoid fear. His insecurity and his worry about his tenuous reign led him to believe that anything was a threat to him. I don't think it dawned on him very much that as long as he was pleasing to Caesar Augustus, he would have been fine. But that's the person that Herod was. And so you can imagine with all of that, when these three magi show up in his court and ask, where is the newborn king of the Jews? He was panicking. And so he tries to deceive them and sends them, says, look for the child and bring word back to me so that I may worship him also. Of course, we know very well he had no intention of worshiping Jesus. He wanted to kill him. If only he had believed, if only he had understood something about Jesus, that he had not come as a political king, he wasn't going to overthrow him, that his kingdom was to reestablish the kingdom of God, the kingdom of righteousness, to defeat not the Romans, that wasn't the enemy Jesus came to defeat, but the devil himself, the real enemy. But the people at that time, and Herod especially one of them, had their eyes fixed only locally. They looked at their time and their immediate situation, and they forgot to look at the whole picture. That God is talking about looking over all of time. The great enemy of all time was Satan. Not the Romans, they came and went. Any other government that comes and goes, well, it will come and go. Maybe even our own government someday, who knows what might happen. But Christ is looking at the end of time, the great uh, enemy of all is Satan. And that's who he came to destroy by his birth, his suffering, death, and resurrection. And the wise men saw it differently. And one of the things that's beautiful about the wise men, we notice, is that they were not Jews. Matthew gives us almost no information about them. He says, wise men from the east arrived. That's all we know. Tradition has filled in other things, such as their names and the numbers and all that. Um, he just tells us, Matthew, they were wise men and brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And we don't know where they came from. You know, we don't know anything about them. Tradition has filled in a lot of that information for us. And the, the Cathedral of Cologne in Germany claims to have the relics of the three wise men. They may very well do so. But Matthew doesn't tell us that. The importance of mentioning them to Matthew was that they represented the Gentiles, the people who were not Jews, where the shepherds represented the people of Israel adoring their king. Now something that the Jews at the time would find, find unheard of, that even the Gentiles would be saved in this Christ. 
And we see this first in the adoration by the Magi. And they made a long and difficult journey to come and find Jesus. They didn't know what to expect beforehand, obviously, because they showed up right away in Herod's court, thinking he was born into Herod's family, and all we discovered afterwards that wasn't the case, and Herod knew nothing about this. And the star led them to find the child Jesus. And somehow, when they saw this infant, they understood it all. It made perfect sense to them, and their journey was now worth it. Jesus couldn't speak to them. He didn't give them any um, any um, messages. He didn't give them a seat in his government or any treasures or anything like that. But they saw this infant that they knew was a unique king, and they prostrated themselves before him. Let's not pass over that word lightly. Prostration is not just bowing before. It means laying face flat on the ground. You know, I've never seen any depictions of the Magi prostrate. I'd love to see a nativity set where the three kings are lying face flat on the ground. Because that's in fact what they did. And that was a symbol that I am nothing, you are everything. The child Jesus was everything. And these great wise men were nothing. Sometimes we call them the kings because of the Psalms and uh, the prophet uh, Isaiah telling us about kings coming to worship them, bearing gold and frankincense. They may have been kings. Magi is the, the word Matthew gives us, which means wise men. But if they were wise and kings, look what that means. All the political power and all the wisdom of the world prostrate before the infant Jesus. We are nothing Lord Jesus, you are everything. And they presented those very unusual gifts to him. Now, of course, if you go to visit someone who's just had a baby, you might bring them a receiving blanket, a onesie, some diapers, rattles, toys, things like that. They didn't bring anything like that to Jesus. They brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Weird gifts for an infant. Actually, one of the apocryphal gospels tells us there was actually a fourth wise man who was turned away by the Blessed Mother for bringing a fruitcake. <laughs> <laughs> but going back to those three gifts they actually did bring gold gold shows that he was a king anytime one king visited another in the ancient world he brought gold when he visited him in tribute in peace to show he respected his authority as a king so gold showed that jesus was a king Frankincense, incense that we still use at Mass, has been used since ancient times in worship to show divinity, holiness, that this child who was born was also divine. He was a human king, but divine. And then the strangest gift of all, myrrh, a bitter perfume used in embalming, used at burial, to show that this child was going to suffer and die for his people. And so in those three gifts, we see the beautiful revelation of who Jesus was, a human king who was also God, who would suffer for the sins of his people. And the ancient Christian world, the ancient Christians, in seeing that saw so much importance in that symbol, and the wise men making the long journey they did for the Gentiles to prostrate themselves before the Lord. And they knew that just as the star led the wise men to find Jesus, they were called to do the same thing, to be the light to bring other people to faith, especially once the faith went beyond Israel and into the pagan world and got to Rome. In fact, one of the very first feasts 
that Christians ever celebrated was this Feast of the Epiphany. The revelation of Christ, the Epiphany literally means God manifested to the world. God for all the world to see in the flesh. And they knew that the journey to do that for them would be difficult. There would be some people who would lovingly and welcomely embrace the word that they too were now called to salvation by this God. That it's not restricted to being born of a Jewish mother, but now anyone who embraces this Christ will now be welcome to him. As we hear in our second reading, that the Gentiles are now co-heirs with the Jews, that the Lord's salvation goes out to everyone. They also knew that there was going to be another side of that, that there were going to be people who would be threatened by that message, people who didn't want to hear anything about this. And the Christians didn't even go out as if it was merely optional. Well, if you'd like to follow this. No, they tried to encourage people and even told the pagans in Rome, your gods are fake. Your gods don't exist. No other god exists but ours, and you should worship him. And they did everything in their power to get all the world to say, forget your false gods, worship the only god that truly matters. And many people were very threatened by that. We read, for example, in the Acts of the Apostles, when Paul came to Ephesus and was preaching there, and people started believing the silversmith there was furious because he was losing his livelihood because there was the cult of Artemis, uh, Diana to the Romans, and he used to sell statues, of silver statues of Diana for people to use in their worship. And when people were no longer believing in Artemis and believing in the Lord, well, his commerce was gone. He had no more source of income, and so they sought to have Paul put to death. And we see that in so many other places, people who were threatened because it meant to follow this Jesus meant to do things differently. Maybe they had to find another line of work now, another thing to make silver statues of, or whatever it may be. And through the years, that has been the problem for so many people. Many people have been threatened by Jesus. And like King Herod, they fear the word of this new king. And if they only look to see what he really is, they would see there's no reason to be afraid. Christ has come to be our savior not our destroyer. And yet, sometimes even today, when we look to people who despise the very mention of the name of Jesus and don't want to follow him, if we ask them why, some people will give a reason. They might say because they know that our faith uh, is right away tells us that there are certain practices and beliefs that we have to get rid of. That practice, that belief, whatever it may be, is not consistent with Christ's call to holiness, and so we have to leave it aside. We have to live without it. And sometimes it's things that people have been espousing and defending for years, and who all of a sudden come along and say, hey, I've been wrong all this time. Well, that's the hardest thing for some people to do. And so they reject and they defend what they're believing in, not even when they lose every credible reason to believe in it, simply because they've invested so much time in defending this and they won't let go. And other people will probably never be able to give us a good reason. Maybe they've never thought, thought it through. Maybe they have all sorts of false explanations in their lives as to what the gospel means. And some people, I think, have the mentality that if you become a faithful Christian, you're going to be a miserable person while all the sinful people in the world are enjoying themselves. Well, it's actually quite the contrary if we look at history. The great saints have been the most joyful of people, and they are proof of what the Lord tells us when he says, let go. You're holding on to these things you think you need so much, and you're defending them and saying, no, Lord, you've got to give them to me. You've got to let me have them. He's saying, let go. 
You don't need those. The pleasures they're bringing you pale in comparison to the real joy I will give you when you live your life my way. It will mean, of course, a journey for some of us, not the journey of the wise men through difficult times traveling through a desert to be able to get there, but it will mean a far greater journey for many of us, and that is the journey inside, the journey into our hearts to be able to look in and say, where do I have to change? What in my heart has to be remolded? And am I willing to allow the Lord to come in and say, Lord, change me. Help me to be what you created me to be, rather than what I'm trying to make myself be. And for many people, that can be the hardest part of the journey, of making those interior changes. And we fight it. And when we, once we do, maybe we find that peace that we say, you fool. Why didn't you do this years ago? You would have had such peace. And finding the Lord ourselves, we're meant in doing that, we can lead other people to Christ. One of the things that the ancient Christians realized when they were called to be like that star, to lead other would-be wise men to Christ, that in their journey, they would show the light of faith to all people that would come and see them. And just like the wise men must, on their journey, they must have had critics, people look at them and say, what are you, crazy? You're traveling a desert? You're going to go through night when it's cold and the desert when it's hot? And you're going to find an infant? And what's he going to do? Teach you all wisdom? Give you a role in his government? You're crazy. And they must have dismissed them. There probably were others, though, who said, you know, these are not dumb people. These are very intelligent, wise, learned men. Maybe they're onto something. And maybe there were people who followed in their entourage. And in doing that, the wise men on their journey brought other people to Christ. And if so, they too adored him. And they found the wisdom that the wise men discovered when they found God himself in flesh and laying in a manger. And so their journey brought many other people to God. And you and I, in our journey of faith, as we struggle each and every day to try to be like the wise men, to follow the light of faith, through all the difficulties that sometimes will come our way. On that journey, maybe we will lead many other people to Christ who will look at the difference it makes in us and say, wow, it changed him, it changed her, maybe it will change me. I wonder how many people will be driving by our church this evening during Mass who need very desperately the message of Christ that you and I have here Sunday after Sunday and they don't know to come here because they have no one to bring it to them. That is our challenge, to be the epiphany of Christ, to bear him to the world and not be afraid, but to be, as the Second Vatican Council reminded us to be, a lumen gentium, a light to the nations, that we, by our own struggles to find the Lord, will never be afraid like King Herod, never think that Jesus is somehow going to, has come to destroy us, but realize he has come to be our Savior, to put down, to get rid of all fears we have, and find him in our journey, and as we make our journey and we find Christ, lead other people to him, so that by our example, by our words, many other people in the world will also come and find Christ, and that's what will change the world and make the world a better place. Imagine what the world would be like if everybody were just like Christ. So you and I today are challenged at this Feast of the Epiphany to go out and be the Epiphany. Be Christ in the world. 
be his true presence, and help the whole world know they have nothing to fear in this new child born to us. He has been born to free us from sin. He has come to restore light to the darkness, righteousness to all the wrongs of the world. Indeed, he has come to make everything right again and help all the world know and say, rise up in splendor, your light has come. May Jesus Christ be praised, now, now and forever. Thank you for listening to this week's homily by Father Carrozza. If you enjoyed this homily, please pass the word on to your friends and invite them to listen. For more materials from Father Carrozza, please visit www.fathercarrozza.com.